Good morning, family. Only today you can call me Oga. <laughs> if you don't know what Oga is, he's Nigerian chief. So I'm Oga today. I, I, I wasn't brave enough to wear the full suit, so next time I'll wear the full suit. Great to be in the house of the Lord today. Uh, it's my joy and honor to welcome uh, Pastor Steve Murrell, who will be giving us the word this morning. Pastor Steve is the co-founder, one of the co-founders of Every Nation, currently the president of Every Nation. I know it sounds like he's the president of all the nations of the world. And um, he's married to Deborah. They have three sons, and you can see them there, all married, loving God. They have four grandchildren. Pastor Steve, uh, with his wife Deborah, they moved to the Philippines uh, 35 years ago on a 30 days mission trip which end up being 35 years, where they have now established a church called Victory, which is in 52 locations in Metro Manila, or close to 100,000 people on a Sunday worshiping God together. What an impact. They have uh, planted churches in 70 cities in the Philippines and in 22 nations of the world. We can pause there and say, thank you, Lord, for this church that's planting other churches. Amen. Pastor Steve has just completed his uh, doctoral studies, and um, he's continuously just learning and getting himself to be a better leader. I want to share a few things that have impacted me about uh, him per se, and a few, uh, many of the leaders in every nation, Pastor Steve's love for God and for His Word, his love for God and God's Word, and also just how he loves the vision to go to the nations, to reach other nations, to take the gospel to nations where people have not had the gospel before, and also his passion for his family. Uh, he's written three books. One, uh, his first one is Wicked Church. Second one is 100 Years From Now. We all have them in the bookshop. And the third one, because he's got three sons, it's called My First, Second, and Third Attempt to Parenting. <laughs> you want to get that book. I haven't read it yet. My wife has read it, and she told me to do everything that's in that book. May we take this time to welcome Pastor Steve Morrow. Thank you, Chief. It really is an honor to be here, and uh, I do not take it lightly, the privilege to worship with you and to preach God's Word. Uh, Pastor Simon, thank you for the, this invitation, and thank you for your leadership. I, um, it seems like every time I talk to Pastor Roger, who is a lifelong friend, he brags about Simon. I wish I could, you could hear what he says about you behind your back. It would really encourage you. <laughs> Trust me, it's all good. And um, Pastor Roger, thank you for your hospitality. And Pastor Roger and I have worked together for, I don't know, 20-some years, and he's served faithfully on our global oversight of every nation. We will be together in Asia in about five weeks, uh, strategic planning for the next nation's that we're called to reach. And it's been a joy working with not just these two great leaders, their wives, but also we had the last few days um, uh, close to here in, in Getty with a bunch of, a lot of the leaders from around South Africa. And I left our time together inspired. I know some of the pastors left depressed because of a sporting event. Um, and it seems like every time the Springboks have a tragic defeat, Roger and I are together, 
a few years ago, we were in Tokyo together. I won't mention what happened. Uh, but we were so proud of our Japanese pastor who was hosting us because it was the first and only World Cup match that Japan had ever won. And they were, I don't know who they played, but they were celebrating this victory. I don't think they have ever won a game since then. <laughs> and, uh, but I think they're playing that team soon and they're hoping for their second victory. But I know your intercessors are working on that. <laughs> I'm sorry to bring that up. I know. Sunday morning's supposed to be a celebration, but yeah, too soon. Three years is too soon. In <laughs> um, the next service, another Nigerian prince is here. Uh, Brian Stenemann, this is my, my friend, Dr. Brian Taylor. Brian is, uh, he was with us in Nigeria last week, and he is preaching the next service. You might want to stay. If my sermon makes no sense or confuses you, stick around for the next one, because Pastor Brian is preaching that he's the pastor of our Every Nation Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the United States. And um, Okay, I want to introduce you to the newest Every Nation Church in Africa. Ready? Here it is. Not that. <laughs> Every Nation Burundi. Yeah. And hit the next one. That's inside of the church. This church started in February with nobody. And look at that, just since February. Um, go to the next one. This is Pastor Jean-Baptiste Sibomana. All right? Uh, otherwise, we call him John the Baptist. I can't think of a better name for a pastor. John the Baptist. And there's a few more pictures of the church. And we were with John the Baptist last week in Nigeria. And uh, I'll tell you what, he is so full of the joy of the Lord. You just want to hug him. I don't even, I'm not a hug person. I don't really hug, but I just wanted to hug him. Um, and Burundi is one of the poorest nations in the world. Uh, recent lists are saying it is the poorest. And, and um, seven years ago, um, Pastor John came to the Philippines on a full scholarship to study theology at Asia Theological Seminary. The president of that seminary is a member of our church. And so he immediately started coming to our church with his wife and kids, and civil war broke out in his nation, and it was just not safe. And, and instead of going back to Burundi, he stayed in the Philippines for a season and worked, because he speaks French, he worked in a call center, and he got promotion after promotion and really had a good life in the Philippines. He was doing well. God was blessing him, and, and his career was taking off, but something inside wasn't happy. And he said, I have to go back to my people. And he left, as Pastor Roger was saying, Abraham did. He left a lot, and he went back to his nation and planted this church. And um, it's pretty exciting to see because uh, now we're in 82 nations. That's number 82. And uh, we have a lot to go, but um, that's... Um, and I know that you've sent teams there, and I hope uh, there'll be a continued flow of teams going there and helping this church uh, become everything it's supposed to be. You know, when I heard the nations represented in this church... I can't tell you how encouraging that is to me. Um, the church is supposed to be different than the world. The church is supposed to um, be, have a whole different relational vibe than the world. And the fact that this church makes immigrants feel welcome and safe is an honor to God. Um, 
I believe that pleases God, and I believe that is what the kingdom is about. In a culture, not the whole culture, because much of the culture is amazing here, but in parts of the culture that is rejecting immigrants and even violently confronting immigrants, this is a place, the kingdom of God, the church of God is supposed to be a place where it's safe and loving and encouraging and welcoming. And may we always be a church that welcomes anyone and everyone to come and hear the gospel and be a part of the community. So, well done. I have a friend I grew up with in America, and he brought up recently some immigration issues in America. And I know they're different there and here, but here was my response. I I didn't agree with anything he said. I didn't agree with, I understood it, but I didn't agree with it. This is a Christian man. And... I didn't share his views. I didn't share his fears. I didn't share his concerns. And he asked me my opinion. I said, look, I, I understand what you're saying, and I, I, I get it. I said, but I, as a missiologist, as a missionary to the lost in the world, I have to look at this. I have to take off my nationalistic lenses as an American and put on my missiological lenses as a Christian. And then the Bible has to form and shape how I treat the foreigner. Not my culture, not my government, not my family background, but what does Scripture say? And am I thinking biblically about the people groups that are in this nation, or am I thinking nationalistically? Thank you for thinking biblically. Every Nation Rosebank, and for acting biblically, and for being countercultural. Um, as important as mission is, and it's important, I love, I see the flags, and, and we've celebrated the nations, and this church is on mission. You get it. You get your mission to your city, to your community, to your campuses, and to the nations around you. You get it. You do it. You're exemplary. I wish every church would embrace the mission the way you do. Great job. As important as mission is, we're starting a REACH series about how we as the people of God and the community of God are supposed to reach beyond our bubble into our community and campus and country and beyond. But I want to say at the beginning of this REACH series, there is something more important than the mission. And as you make your way to Revelation chapter 7, I want to tell you a story. There's a man who owns 19 successful restaurants in New York. His name is Danny Meyer. And many years ago, when Danny Meyer had only one restaurant, he was very frustrated often that his vision and mission of the restaurant kept getting pushed to the sides. And he did what most young leaders should do. He found an older mentor. And he found an older gentleman who owned a restaurant in New York. And once a month, they would sit down. And this young man would pour out his frustrations to this older mentor. And here's what happened. One day, they're sitting at his restaurant. And the older mentor listened to Danny talk about how his core values of his restaurant, which were hospitality and excellence... And they keep getting pushed to the side. And so the old mentor said, okay, take everything off of this table. And they took everything off. And then the old guy picked up a salt shaker. 
and said, Danny, this is your mission and your values. I want you to put this right in the center of the table. So Danny got it, and the perfectionist that he is, he put it right in the center. And the moment he let his hands off the salt shaker, the old man moved it three inches. He said, put it back. So Danny carefully, precisely put it back. And the moment he took his hands off, the old guy put it right on the edge. Put it back. And here it goes. There. Put it back. Put it back. Put it back. Now, Danny recognized this as a Mr. Miyagi moment. (laughs) And what the old man said was, every single day, people will move your vision and your mission off center. And every single day, your job as the leader is to put it, not spill it, put it back. Some people will move it because they're bad people and they want to make your life difficult. But that's not most people. Some people will move it because they think they're actually helping you. Some people will move it because they think that you should add their ideas to it. Other people move it because they're careless and they're busy and they don't even realize they did something wrong. But whatever reason it's moved, your job as a leader is not to get angry at those people. Your job is to just move it back to the center. What does this mean for us? One reason we gather once a week for corporate worship, you know what's happening when we're here? Life throughout the week pushes the things that matter off center. And it's the job of your pastors not to get mad, but to move the spiritual things that matter in life back to the center. Now, let's look at this text in Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, and blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then... One of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of God. 
to properly understand and interpret and apply the book of Revelation, there's a simple key. How many of you have ever read the book of Revelation and gotten confused? How many of you ever read the book of Revelation and had a weird dream? How many of you just don't want to read it anyway because it's scary? All right. Let me simplify it for you. Like any letter, this is a letter written by John. If you start in the middle, it's confusing. Revelation 1.1, five words are the key to understanding Revelation. Here it is. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the starting point. So in other words, this whole letter is to reveal Jesus Christ. It's not about a beast, a 666 tattoo on the forehead. It's not about an antichrist. If you read it looking for all of that stuff, you will find a lot of weird stuff. But that's not what it's about. If you read it for the reason it was written, to reveal Christ to you, you'll find him. All right? The revelation, not the concealment. Revelation means the presenting, the unfolding, the revealing of Christ. So let's read it that way. Let's find out what he's really like. Let's find out who it is. And let me give you a hint. Kind of the whole Bible is written for that same reason. To find Jesus. So we know what he's really like. We know what he really thinks. And then we respond to that. This was written by John. You remember John was one of the original 12. He's an old man when he writes this, and he's, in, he's a prisoner. He's in exile for his faith, and he's had all kinds of physical tortures. He's had all kinds of... I mean, it's, it's been a tough life. He's the only one of the original 12 who's lived to be an old man. He's the only one of the original 12 who didn't die a violent death. Ten of the 12 died violent deaths via persecution, one, Judas, was violent death, but he killed himself. John's the only one who survived them all. And he's had a tough life. But remember this. Remember his nickname in the Gospel of John? Anybody remember his nickname? The beloved disciple. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he did give himself that nickname. You got to love the self-assurance. <laughs> or maybe it was a reminder because maybe he struggled with that. Maybe he nicknamed himself that so that he could be a reminder. But here's the point. The fact that he was the beloved disciple did not exempt him from difficult times as a Christian. And I'm not sure, but I have a hint. It might not exempt you. Um, Here's the problem. When we have difficult times as Christians, we immediately assume maybe God doesn't love us as much as he loves someone else. That is a terrible assumption because the beloved disciple went through things a lot tougher than any of us in this room. And it did not diminish God's love for him. And just because you have a difficult time does not mean God loves you less. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you or with God. It just means we're living in a broken world. It means we're living in a messed up world. And until eternity, we're going to have tribulations and difficult times and tough times. But God still loves us through it. All right. Now, here's what it says in verse 9, beginning of our text. 
After this, I looked and behold, this is John. He looks and behold, he sees something. What does he see? That's what we want to see in this text. He sees basically two things, but I like to describe it this way. Any of you do jigsaw puzzles? Any, any jigsaw puzzle people here? Okay, not very many of you. All right. I hate jigsaw puzzles. But some of my family members love them, and they're really good at it. And um, they tell me that, <clears throat> you know, you, the way you do a jigsaw puzzle is you look at the picture on the box, right? And then you know what you're trying to make, and all of your action is supposed to be contributing to that picture. And the professionals in my family say that you work on the edges first. And when you get the edges right, then the middle starts to make sense, right? Okay, but the key is the picture. You know what you're doing. Now, some people do jigsaw puzzles with no pictures. Those are, I don't even have a comment on that. Why torture yourself? But what this is, John says, look, I behold, I looked, and here's what I saw. This is the box top. He's describing the box top, and so everything we do is supposed to make it look like this thing we're reading. This is a picture of heaven. And what he saw were basically two things. People and a throne. Okay? That's the box top. People and a throne. What did the people look like? He says there were a great multitude no one could count. Get in the kingdom of God. Get used to thinking big. One thing that happens when you get around kingdom people is your small thinking doesn't fit anymore. Multitudes that no one can count. Then it says these people are from every nation. 193 member nations of UN. There are a few other nations that are sort of nations. They're not, but 193 member nations. We're in 82 of them. That leaves 111 to go. 111. A lot of nations left in your continent around surrounding you. I mentioned our new church in, in um, Burundi. And similar to what Pastor Rogers said about Abraham earlier, that man was in another nation all the way in Asia, living a comfortable, good life in a good church. It's my church. <laughs> but something in him said, you've got to go back to your people. And I'm so happy to see what God's doing there. Listen, when I put on my missiological lenses and I look at your nation, there are a lot of people coming from a lot of different nations here. They have their reasons, but I believe on top of that, God has a reason for sending people here. And I want to see God's plan and God's hand and God's purpose. I want to view whatever's going on in society providentially, not nationalistically. So could it be that there are some Jean Baptiste, just like he went to the Philippines to get training and to get support and to get equipped to go back to his nation. Could it be that God's bringing the nations right here to Joburg to meet people like you, to catch a vision and get trained and get equipped to go back to their nation and take what they have here? Also, could it be that they're bringing something important here that we need to learn? I think so. It says not only from every nation, it says from all tribes and peoples and languages. 
Sometimes Christian missionaries have been rightly criticized for disrespecting local tribes, local customs, local cultures, local languages. That's true, and that's tragic. But what has not been quite as focused on is the fact that Christian missionaries throughout history have also preserved language and culture. Every year, languages go extinct. There are many languages that would have long been extinct except Christian missionaries went and dignified the language by getting it written down and translating the Bible into that language. And oftentimes, once the Bible is available in a local language, that language is elevated and that language is preserved. The spread of the gospel has preserved languages and the cultures that go with those languages. So when we get to heaven, there's not one holy language. I know there's, re- there's a religion that teaches there's one holy language. And the holy book has to be in that language and the translations of the book aren't valid. And that it all basically then you get rid of the other cultures and language and there's this... This, this religious, holy language and culture. That's not what Christians are supposed to believe. When we get to heaven, it's every language is distinct in every tribe and every type of people. It's not everybody becoming the same. It's celebrating the variety. You think about the value of languages. Um, on the day of Pentecost, we know what happened. The miracle of tongues, remember? It says that when Peter preached, they heard him in their own language, right? And then it lists all the places these people were from. But dig a little deeper and you realize Peter was preaching in Aramaic. That was the language of the Jews in that day. Now, everyone there on the day of Pentecost, they were all Jewish. They were all of the same ethnicity, the same religion, that it was a Jewish festival. They came to Jerusalem for Jesus. They spoke their languages of their cities from all over the Roman Empire, but they also, being Jewish, all spoke Aramaic. Okay, they knew Aramaic. The miracle of tongues, from a practical standpoint, was not necessary. Almost everyone in the crowd already understood Peter preaching in Aramaic. But our God so values and elevates language and culture that he did a miracle so they heard the Aramaic preaching in their own languages from whatever city they came from. Your language matters. It matters to God. It matters to the church. Uh, There was a picture of my family on the screen earlier and my middle son who just landed this morning in South Africa. He's going on a safari next week. His wife is Japanese, born and raised in Tokyo. She's been the worship leader of our church in Yokohama for many years. They've been married a couple of years. And when they got engaged, I looked at her and I said, listen, you have to promise me one thing. You have to promise me that my grandchildren will grow up speaking Japanese. She said, don't worry, that is going to happen. Because, you know, obviously she moved from Japan to America. Language matters. I plead with you parents, make sure you pass on your language to your children and to their children. Don't lose it. If you're an immigrant to this nation, don't lose the language that you grew up with. So many immigrants come to America and the next generation has lost the language. And in doing so, they've cut themselves off from a part of the culture that's important. Language matters to God or there would, or there would just be one language in heaven and there's not. 
Every language is elevated in matters. Now, what else about these people? From every nation, great multitude, every language, every tribe. And then it says they were clothed in white robes. This is metaphorically speaking. He's trying to describe this vision he saw, but clothed in white robes. Um, and it says that this idea of they were washed in the blood of the Lamb, it comes up over and over and over in Revelation. If you take all the, 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 the what you're wearing, okay, you take this. You take Brian's is sort of gray and Pastor Simon's is sort of blue and you take whatever it is and you, you dip it in blood. It doesn't come out white. But he says all these robes, everybody there is in white because they washed it in the blood of the Lamb. They come from different tribes. So every tribe, I was looking around this room, every tribe, tribal, it's looking different. But if you dip it all in blood, it comes out white. It doesn't do that. So this is a metaphor, and it's a miracle, and that's what happens to our lives. No matter what dirt we have on us, no matter what we've done, when we're washed in the blood, we come out metaphorically white. It's a picture of the gospel. And then it says this about these people. Verse 14 tells us this multitude came out of great tribulation. Tough times. They came out of tribulation. Now, remember the box puzzle, the puzzle piece, you know, look at the box. I wish I could just lose this piece. I wish I could take this piece out of everybody's puzzle, out of your life, the tribulation, the tough times. I wish we could just take that one and throw it away. But we can't. It's a part of the puzzle. It really is. And as I said earlier, John was this beloved disciple and he still experienced physical torture in prison for his faith. And God still loved him. Whatever you're experiencing, God still loves you. He does. Um, maybe the people persecuting you don't, but God does. They came out of great tribulation. It's common in the West, only in the prosperous West, would they ever come up with a doctrine like, don't worry, you'll get raptured before anything bad happens. I mean, when you preach that to my friends in Iran, they're going, what do you mean we'll miss the tribulation? We live in tribulation every day. And my friends in China whose churches have been shut down, they're going, hey, don't worry. Before the tribulation hits, the rapture will happen. And they're going, tribulation started 10 years ago. Did we get left behind? I, I, I don't... I mean, we come up with these ideas that aren't really rooted in Scripture because this idea of tribulation is all over the place in Scripture. I want to introduce you to one of these, my friend, Pastor T. I won't say his real name. I don't want you to tweet it out or something. Pastor T, we got a picture of him. And uh, how about that for Heritage Day? Um, it's Pastor T and his family. I won't say which nation he's in, but he's in one of the most restricted nations in the world. It's uh, near the Himalaya Mountains. And uh, September 10th, 2014, after six months in prison, the judge finally rendered the sentence. Four years in the worst, most dangerous prison in his nation. He was transferred immediately to that prison from the prison he had been in for six months. His crime he was guilty of Preaching the gospel and showing the Jesus film. He was completely guilty as charged. During his six-month trial, no lawyer in the whole country would represent him. 
There was not one Christian lawyer in the country, and all the lawyers of the other religion would not touch this case. And so he had no lawyer, and he has no legal background. He studied theology in Manila at Asia Theological Seminary. He has a theology degree, and he defended himself for those six months, but ended up with four-year prison sentence. Five days after being transferred to the worst prison, September 15th, 2014, Pastor T had an angelic visitation in prison. It was just like Acts 12 when the angel comes in and takes Peter out of the prison, except the angel in, in this vision wasn't taking Peter out. He was taking Pastor T out. Twelve hours later, it wasn't an angel. It was the guard who took him out of the prison and explained, the judge said to let you out, but you're now under house arrest. So now... By January 19th, now it's 2015, uh, after four more months of house arrest and defending himself in front of the new judge, he was finally released without much explanation. So he went right back to preaching the gospel and doing everything <laughs> and doing everything that cost him the last um, 10 months of his life. He's now planted a second church in his nation, and uh, I hope to visit him soon. He was denied a visa, or he would have been at our world conference in Orlando. Don't tell him, don't worry, before tribulation hits, everything will be okay. He lives in it every day. Uh, my Chinese friend who leads our churches, every nation churches in China, we're in nine cities. Um, all this past year, our churches have all been visited by the police, and most of them have been shut down. He told me that the police in his city have announced that they have a $1,000 U.S. dollar cash reward for anyone who would expose an underground church. And so when that word was spread, our pastor, my dear friend, went straight to the police and introduced himself. He did. <laughs> and he said, I, I understand you're looking for me. They said, no, we actually know exactly who you are. We've been to your church many times. And they said, we actually like what you're doing. But don't let it get too large or we'll have to shut it down. It got too large and they shut it down. <laughs> but here's what he said. Here's an exact quote from him. He said, the government... Cannot, the, the government can stop us from public worship, but they cannot stop us from making disciples. So they went from one church to now they meet in multiple locations all over the city. They just went smaller, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. Tribulation. Tough times. Now, I need to wrap this up. This box top, the vision, what John saw, it was People. Every tribe, every language, every nation, white robes because of the blood of the lamb. They've been through tough times. But the other thing he saw was a throne. And in our ESV, it says um, the throne was in the midst of this whole vision. The NIV says the throne was in the center. Right in the center. In Revelation 5, Revelation 7, Revelation 19, this whole picture that unfolds. We're focusing on chapter 7, but over and over it talks about the throne being in the center. Um, 
What we're doing today, like every time we gather, is putting not a salt shaker back in the center, but Jesus on the throne back in the center. Because I don't know about you, but Monday, Tuesday, by Thursday, sometimes it's a little off. Sometimes my focus is more on my work or the problems or this or that. And then we get back here to worship and somebody stands up here and calls us back to be centered on Christ. Hopefully you get that more than Sunday. Hopefully every day when you get up and read your Bible and pray, that's centering back on Christ. Christ at the center. I want to end this in chapter 19. It's still, still an unfolding of this picture that John sees. We've been mostly in chapter 7, but in 19 it says this, this picture of Jesus. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Think about that. Jesus, this vision is a robe dipped in blood, so that would be red, right? Red. There's blood, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Verse 14 of Revelation 19. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on horses. So here's the picture. Now we get to Revelation 19, the same unfolding picture. Here's Jesus. His robe is red because of the blood that he shed. Here's Jesus. And those coming behind him, their robes are what? His robe is red. Our robe is white. Cleansed by the blood. Because his robe is red, he gets to sit on the throne of our lives. Because of what he did on the cross, he gets to sit on that throne in the center of our lives. There's nothing else worthy to be on the throne in the center of your life, in your church, in your family. Because he shed his blood, he gets to sit there. Because his robe is red, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Because his robe is red, he makes the rules and he rules the world. Because his robe is red, our robe is white. Because of the price he paid, the gospel says we are cleansed. No matter what our sins past, present, future, because Jesus shed his blood and his robe is red, we are clothed figuratively, metaphorically, in white robes, recognizing the purity. Remember I said jigsaw puzzles, you start with the edges, figure out the center. The Christian life is exactly the opposite. If you get the center right, Jesus on the throne everything else starts to make sense. And when things around us on the edges, when those don't make sense, it might be because we're not centered properly. Let's get Jesus on the throne back in the center. The rest of it will start falling in place. Will it always be peaceful and joyful and happy? No, there will be some tribulation in this world. But we get Jesus in the center on the throne, and it's going to turn out okay. I want to end this sermon with a moment. I'd like us to bow our heads and I'd like us to just get before him right now. Bow your heads for a minute. Lord, we, in this moment, invite you back to your proper place in the center of our lives, on the throne of our lives. We acknowledge you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We acknowledge that it's by your blood, not our good works, that our sins are forgiven.
that our lives were made clean. So Lord, thank you for taking your rightful place on the throne, in the center. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give God a big round of praise. Thank you, Father.